Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Lord, everybody. So good to be in the house of the Lord on Wednesday night. Amen. We are, you can be seated. We are in our 11th lesson of the book of Revelation. Amen. Thank you, sir. Before I go on, uh, let's go ahead and pray over this. Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity in your house. Lord, I ask you to help me to teach in a way that you can anoint. Help me to say everything you'd have me to say. Nothing more, nothing less. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight. Help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in our 11th lesson of the book of Revelation. If you remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 19, we are given an inspired outline, if you will, for the book of Revelation. John is instructed by Jesus to write the things that he sees. He's then instructed to write the things that shall be and then the things that are going to be in the future. Rather, the things which are and then the things that are going to be in the future or the things that shall be. So in obedience to that, if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John writes the vision that he sees of the glorified Christ. And we remember, there's a, it's just a striking picture of Jesus. It's Jesus in his glorified state. And then in obedience to the command of the Lord, we see John writing in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches uh, of Revelation. We talked about how many people have different views on those churches in the book of Revelation. I don't like to put stuff into Scripture. I like, I like to pull what's in Scripture out. Amen? So... People say a lot of things about those seven churches. Here's what I believe. Those are seven actual churches that were in the book of Revelation. They were around that time, and Jesus had a specific word for those churches. Why were they chosen? They were chosen because of the issues in each church are relevant to the church in all ages at all times. When you read, as as we studied uh, uh, the last few weeks over those churches, we find that it's easy to see stuff today in those churches. Amen. So that's what is. John wrote, John wrote what is. In his day, that would have been what is. That was present. That was happening right then. And then John is instructed to write the things that are going to be. 
the things that are going to happen. And in chapters 4 and 5, and in chapters 21 and 22, we find a picture of heaven. Chapter 4 actually is the first time that we find um, heaven in this way. And it's, it's really incredible. I wanted to start out this lesson, though, by pointing out there's a lot of people that love the anxiety that they get out of reading the book of Revelation and the confusion therein. And they read about the beasts and the dragons and the plagues and the vials and all of that, the bowls, and they just love it. And they love looking for all this stuff. I'm going to tell you my view tonight. And we are going to study the book of Revelation and the rest of the book of Revelation. And we're going to get, God's going to give us some stuff out of it and we're going to be encouraged by it. But if you experience, this is encouraging, but it can also be devastating. If you experience anything that happens in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 20, I've got bad news for you. You've been left behind. After chapter 3, we don't find the church mentioned anymore. We find it one more time in chapter, I believe it's 21, whenever it's talking about heaven. The only time you see from chapters 4 through 22, the church mentioned, you find the church in heaven. So that's a sign that the church was raptured up. So I just want to say that. We're going to be looking at in future weeks, the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. And it's fun to look at and we're going to look at it and there's stuff that we can learn from it. But I believe that we're not going to experience that because I believe we're going to get called out of here. Amen. And obviously me saying that means that we don't have to worry about it. And I don't believe you're going to take it by accident. So I wanted to say that as a precursor just to kind of put you off the edge. Hopefully it doesn't take away some of your excitement from studying it because this is the word of the Lord and there's so much good that's here. But I just want to let you know that we're going to be out of here. At least I hope so. Amen? Amen. So starting this off, our world is, if you pay any attention at all, is eaten up with the idea of the supernatural. It's all over Hollywood. It's all over books. It's everywhere. The supernatural. People want it. People pursue it. Um, the most popular books in bookstores today and actually films as well are dystopian novels, dystopian stories. What does that mean? It's, it's, it's tragedy. It's, it's, uh, something bad happens, disaster happens, nuclear, whatever, something happens, and then it's the story of those people rising from the ashes. So let's just say that there's something inside of humanity, uh, that is drawn towards disaster, that kind of sees disaster coming. And it's almost like that's natural that it's put there because there's something inside of all of us that is anxious for it. If you look in Christian bookstores today, I'm aware of at least 50, there may be more, but there is at least 50 books written by a person um, who believes that they have visited heaven or have visited hell and have come back to tell the story. 
I would counsel you to be, be wary of their stories. You would probably do well to ignore those stories uh, in the bookstore. Just go ahead and skip that book. Those often, those stories, they kind of tell fantastic stories about heaven. Usually, if you read one of them, they're going to talk about their family or their friends or some fantastic sight that they saw while they were in heaven. But actually, um, there's only been around, I think it's four men in the entire Bible that have experienced heaven. Paul's one of them. John's one of them. Paul said that he got called up to the third heaven. And then you've got John and John experiences heaven by way of this vision that we have here in chapter 4. Chapter 4, as I said earlier, it's the first detailed look of heaven that we get in the Bible. John, as he sees this vision, he sees God as he really is. God glorified, sitting on a throne. And this leads, as we will see, to worship and surrender. You cannot see Jesus as he really is without having a heart of worship and surrender. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, woe is me. All of a sudden, that crushing weight of who he really was, how small he really was, came pressing down on him. As we see here, John is getting ready to show us what heaven looks like. And the one that's sitting on the throne, and there's an amazing story here in chapter 4 of just worship and surrender. Let's look at verse number 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse number 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. So, first thing right off the bat, John sees an open door. So imagine John, he's writing his letter down, he's recording the things that Jesus says, and then Jesus says uh, that he's got to write down what's going to come next. And all of a sudden, as John's writing, he hears this booming voice that's like a trumpet. And he looks up, and as he looks up, there's an open door. And immediately, it happened immediately, he was transferred in a vision through that open door into the throne room of heaven. This idea of an open door is interesting because already in Revelation, we saw two other mentionings, if you will, of a door. You have in the church of Philadelphia, a door of opportunity was mentioned. In the letter to the Laodiceans, a door to the heart was mentioned. And we were, or you could call that a door of fellowship, because the church of Laodicea uh, was instructed to let Jesus in. And it's what a sad thing that would be, right? To be living for God, but keeping Jesus at an arm's length. Amen. This door, however, John sees it. We could call this a door of revelation, revelation, rather. It's an open door. And immediately he is thrust through the open door and he's into the throne room of heaven. 
Amen. As I said before, only a couple of people have actually had this experience, and Paul was one of them, and he said he was transferred to the third heaven. What does that mean when we talk of the third heaven? Um, the first heaven would be the sky that we see, birds, all of that kind of thing. You would distinguish that. The second heaven would be space and outer space. And then the third heaven is that dwelling place of Almighty God. So very few people have actually up until this point witnessed heaven uh, the way that Paul had and the way that John has. What's interesting, and now people argue over this, was John being raptured? Was John not being raptured? What was happening? John was not literally being raptured. You have to remember, this was a vision. He was still on the Isle of Patmos. However, this vision is an exact parallel of what's going to happen to you when that trumpet sounds. If you've been living right, if you've been faithful to Almighty God, you've been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, in the blink of an eye, in a moment, you're going to hear the trumpet and then it'll happen so quickly you'll be changed. We don't know what we're going to be like, but we know we're going to be like Him, is what the writer says. So immediately it happens. Blink of an eye. John goes from one place to now he's seeing a vision of heaven. He's in the throne room of Almighty God. And I love how it says, he hears that voice that says, come up, come up. I feel like we're going to hear something like that. We're going to hear Jesus say, come on, come up higher. Amen. And that's a good thing. And what pastor preached last week, it's not something to be afraid of. This is something to encourage the saints. This book, and this is it's kind of how spoiled American Christianity actually is. Do you realize the book of Revelation, I think I already mentioned it, but I want to mention again. This was written to people that were so persecuted that whenever they read this book, it was an encouragement to them because they realized that at the end of the road, if they could just hold on, they were going to win. Jesus was the victor. So when you read the book of Revelation, there shouldn't be fear or anxiety that gets a hold of the believer, but it should be faith and belief and a longing. And by the time you get to the end of Revelation, you ought to be able to say, your heart ought to be able to say, with all of the saints, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you've never prayed that, you ought to be in your daily time of prayer, searching your heart and getting closer with Jesus because there ought to be that longing in your heart that says, come quickly. Amen. So here we are. John is getting ready to experience heaven. Let's read verses two and three. Immediately, he says, happens in a blink of an eye. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So here's John called through the open door to the very throne room of God. And as he steps in and he looks around, he and this is why I'm telling you to be wary of those people that say they've been to heaven and come back. Because if you've been to heaven and you're fascinated by everything else but Jesus in heaven, I'm afraid you haven't been there. Immediately when John steps through 
and he's through the open door and he's in the throne room of heaven, his eyes lock on to the greatest, most majestic, most wonderful, most beautiful sight that he's ever seen. And that is the Lord, the King of glory, sitting on a throne. This word throne, it's thronos in the Greek. It's mentioned 14 times in 11 verses. And it's kind of the key word, if you will, of the chapter here in in chapter number 4. We see, and this is significant, I don't understand these people that miss... The only way you can miss this is by allowing theologians who create words to read back into Scripture stuff that's not actually there. There is only one throne, and there's one that sits on the throne. And we know there's only one that's been given all power in heaven and earth. So John is not surprised. John is not shocked as to who he sees sitting on the throne. He sees, he would have been shocked if there had been three thrones. He would have been disturbed. That would have bothered him. But he saw something that he expected to see. One throne and one who sits on the throne. I joke about it, but when you get to heaven, you're not going to see an old man and his son and a perch with a dove sitting on it. That's not what's happening. You're going to see Jesus. That's the only God you're going to see in heaven. His name is Jesus. So, we take from this comfort in the fact when he gets there, he sees Jesus on the throne. He didn't have to see Jesus ascending to the throne or a ceremony where Jesus was taking the throne. Jesus was on the throne. And that tells me that Jesus was already on the throne. That tells me that right now, Jesus was on the throne when John was in Patmos and he was in the vision and he had that vision. And Jesus is going to be on the throne. He's on the throne right now and he's going to be on the throne when we get there. Amen? That should encourage us because everything that's happening in our world, all of the stuff that's going on that gives us anxiety and stress and depression, We ought to hold it up against the fact that there's one on the throne and he knows my name and he's my Lord and he's fighting for us. Amen. So it's all in his control. So we've got to balance all of that with that understanding. He sees Jesus and he says he sees him and he says like Jasper and a sardine stone. So he's doing his best to describe what he sees because what he sees is so beautiful and fantastic. And he describes Jasper and the way that it's described in chapter 21 is like a clear crystal, possibly like a diamond. So he sees the Lord shining like a diamond. And then he sees also the Lord like a sardine stone. Sardine is a beautiful, it's beautiful, it's red, it it can only be likened maybe to a ruby. So he sees the Lord and the Lord is shining like jasper, like a sardine stone, like a diamond or a ruby. In the Old Testament, so you ask yourself, what does this mean? In the Old Testament, the high priest would wear a breastplate which had 12 stones. And each stone represented a tribe of Israel. And as the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would 
put the blood on the mercy seat for all of Israel. He went in there wearing this breastplate that had these stones that were representing the tribes. What does that mean? That means as he walked in to the Holy of Holies, he walked in as the representative of those tribes. He was the guy that was doing it for them. So here you have Jesus. The jasper is the first stone on that breastplate. The sardine stone is the last stone on that breastplate. Now, Scripture doesn't specifically say that that's what it's referring to, but I've got an idea that it's possibly referring to the fact that Jesus is our representative. And he's the representative of the covenant people of God. Another way that you can understand it is crystal diamond. It's clear. It's pure. It could represent the holiness of God. And that would mean that the red crystal, the, the ruby, if you will, uh, represented the wrath of God. And there's another reason why people don't, Revelation kind of makes people uncomfortable because their image of God um, is a little bit slanted in 2021. Because all we see of God, all we hear about God is merciful God, loving God, and He's all of those things. But Revelation reveals to Him to be a God of judgment and justice and wrath. And so it's possible that those two uh, things represent that. And then the next thing that he sees, either way, whatever it is that you want to say that those two things represent, one thing's clear. The glory of God was present. And that's what John saw. The next thing he sees, I wish my niece was here. He sees a rainbow around the throne. It was kind of a greenish rainbow. Now, what I love about this, what is the rainbow? The rainbow is a symbol of two things. It is a symbol of judgment of God. Because you can't look at the rainbow as a believer, as somebody who knows the word of God. You can't look at the rainbow and not think about the flood that destroyed humanity. But also it's a sign of the mercy of God. Because you can't look at the rainbow and not think about the fact that God promised to never destroy the, the earth the same way. So John sees this wonderful, magnificent God sitting on the throne. And one of the first things that he sees is a symbol of God's judgment, but also God's mercy. What else did he see whenever he saw that rainbow? He saw the faithfulness of God. We sing a song called the promise keeper. He's a promise keeper. And when you get to heaven, you're going to see a sign that he's a promise keeper. I believe he has that rainbow in heaven as just a testament. It's almost as if he's saying, I kept my word. All of these years, I made a promise to Noah and I have kept my word. That's the faithfulness of God. So when John is in the throne room and he sees that rainbow, all he can think of himself is that God makes a promise. God's going to keep it. He's faithful. He's good. Amen. So that's what he sees. That's what you're going to experience if you walk into the throne room of God. It's not going to be an experience that you can walk away from and think of trivialities and everything else that's going on. You're going to be so caught up in the magnificence of the Lord. Look at verse number four. John takes time and he kind of scans 
he scans around. So he sees the Lord, and now he's kind of getting a broader picture of what's going on inside the throne room. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon these seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. What does John see? He's getting kind of a a panoramic view now, a bird's eye view, and he sees what he calls 24 elders sitting on, the translators call it seats, but it's that same word, thronos. It's thrones, 24 thrones. And there's, there's a reason why we need to keep calling it thrones and not sacrifice that language. Jesus said, you're going to rule and reign with him. So here they are. They're sitting on 24 thrones. They're dressed in white and they're wearing a crown. Now, There are three main views of who these 24 are. I'll kind of quickly sum them up. Number one, some people believe that these 24 are representatives of the saints of all ages. Second view is some believe that they're just representatives of the church and the church age. The third view is they are representatives of an order of angels. I believe that the best view of who these 24 are, are representatives of the church. The church is the only group that is promised to rule and reign with Jesus. And so you've got these 24, they're wearing crowns, they're sitting on thrones, they're wearing white robes. Angels are never seen ruling, never seen reigning anywhere in the Bible. Angels are ministering spirits. That's what they are. White garments are, as we know, common dress of the believers. That's the way that believers are dressed commonly in Scripture. White representing Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer. In the church in Sardis, if you remember when we, when we studied that letter to the church of Sardis, they were told, they were promised that they were going to receive uh, white robes, church in Sardis. The church in Laodicea was told to buy white garments. They were told to purchase the white garments. Crowns, all 24 were wearing crowns. Crowns are never promised to angels, and we never see them wearing them. But these 24 elders, all 24 of them are wearing crowns. So we know that they're not angels. I think that it fits uh, believers in the church age. I think that that's what we see here. 24 elders, the representative of the church. There are two crowns mentioned in Scripture uh, that we're going to see. Number one, there is the diadem. That represents royalty. Only the king gets the royal diadem. So that one is already taken. There's only one that sits on the throne. There's only one crown that has the royal diadem. The other is Stephanos. That's the other crown. It's a wreath. It's, um, it's, the Olympic Games are going on right now. Actually, in Greece, where the Olympic Games started, when competitors would compete, if they would win, they would be given a wreath, a crown to wear. And this is exactly what this is talking about. This is a victor's crown. You can only wear this crown if you have won 
uh, a victory, if you have finished a fight, if you have overcome a trial. Amen. So we know that it's not angels. We know that it's not all believers because not all believers in all times are promised this. We believe this is the church that was promised these things. And this is the church that John saw. Now, verse number five. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, John's here. John sees the throne that the Lord is sitting on. John sees the 24 thrones that the elders are sitting on. And then he looks back again towards the throne after seeing that. And all of a sudden, he sees lightning and thundering and all of that bursting forth. And then he sees seven lamps, which are representing here, according to John, the seven spirits of God. This whole scene is reminiscent of the Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. If you remember, it was a thick darkness. It was chaos. It was lightning and thundering and all of that's going on. And the Lord gave Moses the law. So here we are, lightning, thundering happened before the throne of God. What is this doing? This is foreshadowing righteous judgment that is getting ready to hit a sinful world. That's what John is seeing. Then it says... The seven spirits of God. You've got seven lamps representing seven spirits of God. I'm not going to get too deep into this because there are a lot of different theories, but I want to help you understand, first of all, the most important thing, and that is what it is not. These are not seven distinct and separate spirits of God. That is not the case. All this is, is representing the sevenfold nature of God's spirit. And there are a few verses that we can talk to that I can point you to after this is over if you're interested in that. But there's a lot of arguments over what that is. But we know for sure that it is not seven because at that point then we're believing in many gods. And that's not the case. We know that there's one God and there's one spirit, one Lord, one father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. Amen. Let's look at verses six through eight. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast was like a calf and the third beast had a face of a man and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and the rest, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So the next thing that John sees, he sees the thunderings and the roarings. He sees the seven lamps, which represents the seven spirits of God. And then before the throne, he sees a sea that is so beautiful and so clear that it comes across to him as being glass. No explanations given here on what the glasses represents. So we're not going to make something up tonight. We're just going to focus on what John focused on. And John immediately, and you know what? If I was him, I would probably lose focus of the sea as well. Because what he saw next was shocking and staggering and disturbing in a way. 
he sees circling the throne of God. For the translators call it beasts, but actually the word there is living ones. They kind of do them dirty by calling them beasts, but they're living ones. And no doubt it concerned him and it scared him. Brother Kendall, they, the Bible says they had eyes everywhere. They had six wings. One looked like a lion. One looked like a calf. One looked like he had the face of a man. Face of a man, but eyes everywhere. And then you've got the one that looks like an eagle. And people have argued about what these creatures represent. I believe they're just angels cherubims, if you will, or seraphims, whichever one you choose, that's fine. And they have one job, one job. This is all they do. They sit there, they are the, they are the protectors, the guardians of the holiness of God. They never get tired, they never get weary, they never take a break. They just sit there and circle the throne and fly around the throne and they cry, holy, holy, holy. And what are they doing? They are not protecting God from you. They're protecting us from Him. They're letting us know this is not an ordinary person. What are they crying when they cry holy? We've talked about holy. What is holiness? Holiness is separation. It's separate. It's other than. So what are they crying? They're crying separate. They're crying other, other, other. They're crying holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's interesting, we look at this, and again, as I said at the beginning, I don't understand how people miss this unless they're listening to theologians who create words and read them back in the text. Because what did Jesus say in chapter 1, verse 8? Anybody remember what he called himself? Because I've read, I'll, I'll just be honest, while I'm studying, I'm reading commentaries, and they have a Trinitarian point of view, and they, they do jumping jacks and all kinds of stuff to make this out to be a Trinitarian verse, and they're really confusing themselves, and it's, it's interesting reading it, because they sound confused. And they sound confused because they refuse to believe what's just right there. It's so obvious. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 8 says this. This is Jesus speaking. It's red letter in your Bible if you have a red letter edition. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. What are these cherubims saying as they circle His throne? Now, these theologians want to tell you that this is God the Father sitting on the throne because in chapter 5, we're going to see a representation of the Lamb. But that's weird because they're saying exactly what Jesus called Himself. The cherubims are saying that He is Almighty. The one who's sitting on the throne is Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And Jesus said in chapter 1, I'm the Almighty, the one which is and which was and which is to come. Amen. It's Jesus. We don't have to do mental jumping jacks to figure it out. He gave it to us in His Word. What is revelation? It's the unveiling. The unveiling of what? The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revealing of who He is. He is God manifest in the flesh. The only God. And so that's what John sees. And then this is, this is the most beautiful part of chapter four. And it's, I've waited all night to be able to teach this. It's incredible. 
John has been pressed into the throne room. And he's seeing all kinds of sights. And he's seeing some crazy stuff, possibly some scary stuff. Creatures with eyes everywhere that are crying, holy, holy, holy. But as he hears these creatures, these angels, it's obvious that the elders also heard the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As they begin to cry, as they begin to worship the Lord, something happens. Look at verse number nine. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, verse number 10, the four and 20 elders fall down before him. All of a sudden, while they're crying, holy, 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 you've got these 24 elders that are sitting on thrones. And Brother Chad, it's thrones that they earned. They earned the reward of those thrones. They earned the crown that they were sitting, that they had sitting on their head. They earned it. That's theirs. They're sitting there with the Lord. But in the presence of Almighty God, in the presence of the King of glory, they start looking around at each other and they realize this throne isn't really mine anyways. He gave it to me. He said it was mine, but I'm unworthy of it in his presence. And so the first thing that they did, they got up off of those thrones and they threw themselves at the feet of Jesus and began to worship him and give him glory and give him honor because of the the overwhelming feeling that they had in the presence of almighty God. Yes, they earned those thrones, but in the presence of God, They didn't deserve them. They were unworthy of them. They wanted to give them back to Jesus. Why? Because we were created by him and for him. Everything we do, they had a revelation. Everything we do, everything we've done has been for him. That's why we're here. And so they they get off of their throne and they begin to worship the Lord. And then they begin to look around and I I, I wish I could have seen it just like John saw it because somebody had to start it. Now they're off of their throne and they're on their knees before God and they look around and somebody, I wonder who was the first one of those 24 elders that pulled the crown off and thought to himself, you know, I spent a life being faithful to Jesus. I spent a life honoring him and honoring his word and teaching Bible studies and staying faithful and and upholding the truth. And I've earned this throne and I've earned this crown. That's a victor's crown. It was because they got that crown because they won a victory. They stayed faithful in the trial. But I wonder as the first one pulls the crown off of his head, tears maybe streaming down their eyes as they realize, yes, this is the victor's crown. I won a victory, but I could not have won the victory without the one that's sitting on the throne. And they take that crown that was rightfully theirs that they won and they threw it to the one who it was rightfully his. Amen. And there's going to come a day. When we're standing before Jesus, 
And we've got that crown of righteousness, that crown of glory that he's given us, that crown for staying faithful and overcoming trial after trial after trial. And in the presence of Almighty God, I promise you won't get greedy. I promise you're not going to want to hold on to the crown. You're not going to want to hold tight to it. You're going to want to take it off and throw it at his feet and give him worship and glory and honor. They threw their crowns before him and they cried, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's the revelation that they received. This is why they took the crown off and they threw it at his feet. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We're here for you. You created us. You got us here. They didn't get to heaven by accident and they didn't get to heaven on their own. They realized that it was all Jesus. That understanding came crushing down on them and they cast their crowns before his feet. Victor's crowns and they gave it all to Jesus. I wonder if you could stand. Music wants to come. We're coming to a close. I wonder... John is standing in the throne room of God. And what a powerful scene. What a powerful scene. The holiness of God so clear. You've got 24 elders who, who relinquish their thrones. Take off their crowns, relinquish their crowns. I wonder if what got a hold of John was just an awe and a realization. I want, because John was just a man just like we are. And I wonder if he realized in and of himself, maybe when I gather to worship, I'm not doing it right. Because how many times do we come to church and worship's going on, praise going on, people singing the songs. We've got our hands raised, but we're thinking about where we're going to eat afterwards. Songs going on, worship's going on. We believe that Jesus is in in here. We believe that he has manifested his presence. But in our minds, we're thinking about so-and-so and what they did to us. We're in the presence of Almighty God, the one that the angels are singing around his throne day and night, constantly unending, holy, holy, holy. But all we can think about is how much, how many more minutes before I get to hear dismissed? How long is the worship song going to go on before pastor preaches? And then how long is he going to preach before I get to go home and do what I want to do? How many times do we come in the presence of the Lord with that kind of stuff just weighing down on us? And sometimes it's not even wrong. Sometimes it's just the busyness and stuff of life. You're thinking about work and you're thinking about your family and all the things that you've got to do. But you're in the presence of Almighty God. And I think maybe what John got out of that is nothing else matters in his presence. Nothing. What we do outside of these four walls, when we step into the presence of God and we begin to worship the Lord, we have got to block all of that out because he's worthy of glory and honor and praise. 
and we've got to take it all before him and we've got to bring our victories and we've got to bring our blessings and all of that and cast it. We ought to do it every week. When we step into this house and we step into the house that has been anointed and given to the Lord, and this is, we call this the house of the Lord. We respect this place. When we step in, we ought to do it with a reverence. And we ought to be thinking of every victory that we've won, that God's helped us win through the week. I've stayed faithful this week. My family stayed faithful this week. He blessed me financially this week. I've still got a house to sleep in. He, he woke me up this morning. My heart stayed beating for another week. And we ought to come into the house of the Lord and we ought to cast all of those victory crowns before His feet and give Him praise and glory and honor. And we ought not think about the clock and how much longer are we going to be here. We ought to just soak it up and take as much time as we can get in the presence of the Lord. I wonder if tonight, if you could just find a place, if you want to come up front, you're